Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. For this episode, I am interviewing Mike Dogzilla Tidbits from the Dog Brothers. Who are the Dog Brothers? They're a group of crazy guys who actually. Uh, fight in stick fighting and knife fighting specifically catered from the Filipino martial arts where for head protection they only use a very thin fencing mask and for protection on the hands it's primarily a driving glove or a hockey glove which is pretty much nothing it's really just so that way you don't bleed into your opponents Mike is about 6'4 I want to say easily 200 40 pounds, and that's where he earned his name, Dogzilla. And with Mike, he was a former Marine, and he also worked in the federal prison system. And before everyone got into weaponry and the grappling explosion with UFC 193, everyone just primarily trained in striking, in the stand-up arts. It was boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai. Maybe some included stand-up jiu-jitsu as far as for wrist locks and taking you down to the ground. But with the sobering experience of working in a federal prison, Mike learned the value of all aspects of fighting, and he could not ignore training in weaponry due to the nature of prison fights. You're talking about multiple attackers, people with makeshift shanks, and crude weapons. So this is a really good interview where he talks about where he got into a scrap with Navy SEALs, and then he got backed up by a bunch of chefs with weapons. He talks about hard training back in the day in the 80s and in the 90s and for the start of this program Mike is talking about his beginning in martial arts specifically in Jeet Kune Do training which is Bruce Lee's martial art enjoy on the dog brother website years ago what happened in Orange County where I was part of a group called the brothers and I met Dustin Wynn or most people would say Nugent and his nickname, his nickname was Dustin the Wind, um, and Dustin Nugent uh, introduced me to Jeet Kune Do by way of, um, he didn't have any rock and roll records, and he asked me to come over and say, hey, bring over your records, and um, he had some cheap Lucky Lager beer, and um, even as poor as he was, he would offer us some, like, some rice and we'd make like rice cereal with it or sometimes they had some squid and we'd sit in the garage and listen to records and eat and drink beer and his his garage was like lined with Bruce Lee posters. And so I started asking questions. And he said, well, Mike, you have long legs. You need to learn how to kick. So he started teaching me how to kick. Next thing I know, we were training instead of drinking and eating and and um, that was my first exposure to that style of martial arts and before then oh sorry go ahead before then I, I was just starting to learn some traditional western boxing not that I was any good at it but you know little calisthenics and boxing and 
some typical things you start to learn as a kid, you know. Um, but he started teaching me martial arts with a Jeet Kune Do concept uh, philosophy. And when you started training in JKD, uh, did did you start liking like let's say savat foot stomps for kicking range, and then with tra- with, with like the clinch and trapping range? Eh, I don't know about this Wing Chun Kali stuff, but I do love the Muay Thai clinch. Well, from there, I ended up you know, becoming a moving and becoming a teenager and ended up in the Marine Corps and got primarily into boxing. And of course there's some judo with the throws from the Marines. It wasn't until I was 25, um, say a dozen years later that I ended up in Paul Vunak class in an alley on a Tuesday night, learning all those other things that you described. And so I really didn't know much about martial arts other than what I got exposed to as a kid. And then from there, I just went on learning how to, you know, kickbox a little bit. And then I got exposed to the Savat and the Wing Chun and the Kali and all that, um, primarily through Jeet Kune Do years later. Where, where do you feel the utility of Jeet Kune Do stands in something modern such as like MMA, mixed martial arts? Well, I mean, my own opinion is that Jeet Kune Do helped mixed martial arts and that one reason is we learned to fight in different leads where like in Dog Brothers we call it bilateralism. Um, when we first started learning to fight, a lot of us fought in a dominant lead, probably with our power and our rear hand. And then we started learning Jeet Kune Do and we started putting our strong hand forward or say if we learned uh, Eskrima, we learned single stick or single sword, we had our strong hand forward. And then I started reading where like... Um, Mark Hatmaker and Matt Hughes started started their grappling with their strong hand forward. And I think that um, Jeet Kune Do has influenced mixed martial arts. Um, maybe a lot of people wouldn't admit it. But I think it's had a profound effect on, on NHB and then MMA. And for the listening audience, uh, when Mike Dogzilla says NHB, there was a term before mixed martial arts called no holds barred, which kind of reveals our age. Yes, it does. <laughs> and and did you find a preference or see the vision because uh, your name is Dogzilla and any intelligent person could know that that's in reference to someone's stature. Did you start seeing or envisioning the, the explosion of training and grappling and jujitsu? Yes. I got exposed to grappling later in my stick fighting career. Um, whereas I only knew a little bit of, uh, judo or wrestling 
prior to Jeet Kune Do and used to use a fireman's uh, carry to pick people up and throw them, which I used one time in a street fight in, in Paul Brunak's alley class, and people thought I was a grappler, and I didn't know much about grappling and hadn't even really learned Muay Thai plum. Um, but fortunately, the Dog Brothers were friends with the Machado Brothers, and there was such an influence there that we all had the privilege of learning uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And, it, of course, it was a game changer and also helped me at work. Yeah, and we'll, we'll touch upon, because I'm sure you have quite a bit of story to your character because of your uh, lineage of work and career from the Marines, and then you ended up working at the federal prison. But I'll keep it with martial arts for now. Uh, what was it like training with a backyard group? Because not a lot of the, the, the kids, they don't know about these backyard groups, whether if it's Lameco Escrima or someone like uh, Leo Gahe in New York. But what was it like with the training with Paul Vunak during that time? Well, it was pretty crazy and intense, and you'd show up on a Tuesday night and do some training, and next thing you know, you were full-on fighting in his alley in the elements. But I was only with him for one year, and then I moved on. <laughs> Did you guys end up training with um, a motorcycle helmet? Because I know he's known for having those straight blast videos with the motorcycle helmets. I did a little bit of the trapping drills in it, but most of the time we didn't wear any gear and we just had some lightweight gloves and a mouthpiece and a cup and you went home kind of bloody. But I was in my mid twenties. So, you know, everything seemed to bounce off of me back then where now things hurt <clears throat> quite a bit and, and recovery times different. Yeah. And so after training with uh, Sifu Paul, was the transition to Dog Brothers, meeting Mark Denny and Eric Noss? No, there was one more year where I trained with Tom Burrell, who was out of the IMB Academy. And you mentioned backyard classes. Because of my, my work, working in the federal prison, I didn't have a normal schedule. Um, I ended up meeting a man named Brooklyn Jim who was out of Hell's Kitchen and him and I studied with Tom Burrell for a year before I made it to Dog Brothers in primarily Jeet Kune Do and trapping and we of course started learning Wing Chun and Savat and Muay Thai and Pali and, and after a year of training with Tom Burrell I believe he's back in Long Island now I ended up being introduced to the Dog Brothers, and I've been there ever since. And what was the difference, in a positive way, uh, what was the difference in training from Paul Vunek to Tom? Um, in, a, in a positive way, uh, there was probably more structure in the curriculum, and um, I probably connected with Tom on different levels than I did with um, Paul. And so, you know, we all make connections depending on what animals we have inside of us. And so I just connected with Tom and his training methods and they helped. And, and 
I appreciate everything he taught me. Did you ever get the opportunity to train with the late great uh, coach Bustillo? Bustillo? No, I did not. I was involved in the backyard classes, as you talk about. And from Dog Brothers, I was introduced to Lester Griffin. And I primarily, for a dozen years in Los Angeles, trained either with Mark Denny or Lester Griffin. Um, and we ended up developing the Saturday Dog Brother class of the first Hermosa clan. And Lester kept most of the Jeet Kune Do concept lineage flowing. And Mark primarily taught me Kali and C-Lot and eventually more weapons-orientated arts. And Lester did a lot of the empty hand arts with me. And I started out training with Lester in a paint store with a bunch of surfers. And so, yeah, a good portion of my training comes from these backyard classes that you mentioned. And do you feel there's... um is it better because it seems like it's more intimate to train in a backyard method? And it seems like the impression is because I've trained both in a class and backyard. It seems like a backyard training seems to be more rougher. Oh yeah, it was rougher. Um, it's also prevalent in Hawaii, which comes later in the story of my evolution but while in Southern California, I found that the Jeet Kune Do backyard classes, um, you know, there was no liability. So, I mean, we all went home with, you know, um, bloody noses and fat lips and sometimes a black eye and our shins all banged up and bruises up and down on us from the sparring we were doing after the drills. Yeah, and also the, it seems like there's an under there's an understanding like, Hey guys, this is, you know, we're here trying to learn how to defend ourselves. So this is going to be street based. This is not tie pad work. Well, after someone like Lester surfed off Griffin, put us through the tie pad and take the piss and vinegar out of us. Then he made us far with some real scrappy guys, you know, that had to fight for their wave. Um, so, he actually did both sides, you know, of, of that. There was the drills and there was the sparring. And most of the time he would use the drills to kind of take, you know, some of the, the energy out of us first so we didn't beat the crap out of each other. And so we all could go to work the next day. And then after training with Lesser, where did you matriculate to? Well, it coincided with the whole Dog Brothers. I met Lester... Uh, Griffin through Mark Denny and he complimented what I was doing. So um, he was my senior in Dog Brothers and Lester and I were one of the original 12 Dog Brothers. And then Lester had this backyard class first in a paint store and later in Huntington Beach in his mom's backyard that when I had, I worked shift work and when I had time off, I would go to and Later, my daughter played soccer, and while she was in soccer practice, I would train down in Huntington Beach. But um, later on, we generated, gravitated towards the uh, Dog Brothers, uh, real contact stick fighting. And so it happened at the same time, but there was definitely uh, an evolution there of going from weapons to empty hand and 
Lester covered a lot more of the empty hand sparring. And of course the dog brothers had the, the stick sparring. Now, uh, being of, uh, being taller, bigger, brolicky in stature, do you feel it's harder for someone to develop like stick penmanship or did you pick that up right away? No, I was a very slow learner and, um, thankfully they were patient with me because I didn't have the same kind of agility that say a middleweight or a lightweight has. Whereas like, you know, someone like Dominic Cruz who fights in both leads, he kind of illustrates, you know, a Jeet Kune Do concept of, you know, being able to have his tools in both toolboxes. And I definitely don't move like Dominic Cruz. So with a stick as well, I didn't move like a lot of other people. Um, and it was a challenge to learn all the drills and they took it slow with me and just methodically would make me do something for say like 30 minutes, just do this for 30 minutes and then come back and well, now you got to do this for the next 30 minutes. And that's how some of my early classes started with the crafty dog. And where did you see, how did you look at the knife at that point? Because normally would people who train in FMA uh, for the listener, Filipino martial arts, it, they're, they're both like siblings. So where was your interest just would stick in the beginning? Well, no, something happened to me on a flat bottom troop carrier out at sea where I was a cook and I got into a scrap with a Navy SEAL over the fact that the Kool-Aid ran out. Mm. And then when him and I were going at it, there was times he was beating me up. And then when I started getting a little bit uh, ahead, uh, the SEAL team started to converge on me and this fight. And all of a sudden, every chief Filipino cook that I had worked for came out of the galley with something in their hand. And you would think this stealth SEAL team wouldn't sweat that, but they stopped and turned white as a ghost. And I've told this story a little bit better, but if you think about all the little chiefs that are cooks and they're not in really great shape, but they're mean as hell when it came time for it. And I'm thinking, what does the SEAL team know about these chiefs that I don't know because the SEAL team just stopped and turned white as a ghost and the whole fight de-escalated and so did everything else when the Filipino cooks came out of the galley into the mess deck with weapons in their hands to stop me from getting attacked by this team. And years later, I took that to wanting to learn from Paul Bunak because I understood that Bruce Lee and Dan Asano were friends and partners and I wanted to learn Filipino martial arts and Paul Bunak had that influence and of course so did Mark Denny and the Dog Brothers and so I wanted to learn all the weapons so then I get a job in a federal prison and I find out well my kickboxing isn't going to be sufficient and effective enough to make sure I make it home because these guys got shanks and the knife is very prevalent in prison um, where it's mostly an art of sabotage as well um, and that, of course, is a whole other side of it. But you're asking about the knife. The knife 
became a wake-up call because, one, I'm a cook and I work in food service, so I use a knife to prep vegetables and meat and whatnot, and I'm a cook, bake, butcher. Um, and so having a career in food service since I was a kid, I'm accustomed to working with knives. And then getting a job in a prison, I see what knives can do. And then I see how the Kali, the scream of the Arnis, will help me become better with empty hand and weapons. And then I find out that you can use any kind of weapon with these movements. And I was just like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I need. And I've been doing it ever since. I, I have a pretty serious question because live in the moment when I would train, I've trained uh, with some of the people from the Lamego Backyard Group, a uh, few others, uh, seminars with Grant Tujon, Leo Gahe. And in the moment, because I like to think about the reality of how things happened. And I, I lived in the Philippines when I was younger. I was thinking, you know what? Some of this knife tapping stuff is okay. But why is it that we don't train against the sewing machine? Would would you say like some of the knife tapping is is uh, or the sewing machine training is more important than actual knife tapping? Mm. Well, I think you need both yin and yang. Okay. Um I I wouldn't discard anything that I ever learned before because it got me to where I am today. Okay. I think you need both the sensitivity drills. I mean, some people will discard who, but um, I went to a mock and they were like, it doesn't work with knife traps. So don't use it for empty hand traps, but still it got me to where I am today. I think you need both the tapping drills and the sewing machine drills to have your yin and yang, to have your sensitivity and to have your, your all out, you know, a murderous brawl movement. And I think somewhere in that mix, you find out how to really deal with someone coming at you with a knife. Cause they could be very subtle about it too. They, not everyone comes at you, you know, all out in a blitz and a barrage. They could be taunting you with a knife. Uh, moving smoothly and gingerly if you want it, you know. You can see people pick up weapons and move very differently. They don't always just straight up assault you. Uh, they're very deceptive, you know. I think that the tapping could help you with those other softer movements. That, and I think it's essential to do both. So wh when you just mentioned that someone can move smoothly, is that coming from someone who's even untrained when you were in that reference point? Yeah, I think, um, and I've, I've done this before, especially a lot of indigenous people, they, they could be untrained and, and not realize what they're doing is, is a murderous movement. And it was the equalizer of my group, say, with someone who was a landscaper. And, you know, maybe he couldn't fight his way up paper bag. And was getting, you know, out grappled and, you know, out stick fought and out kickboxed. But God, we put knives in people's hands and all of a sudden they became, you know, a threat. And they, they found that they had something they could use. Oh, wait a minute. I'm used to working with tools. 
And now you put this smaller tool in my hand and I can freaking get busy with it. And we found the knife was the, the total equalizer with the weapon. Would it, would it be, si- I think, Oh, sorry. I interrupted you. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. No, asking, so I, I think that, yeah, you're on to something that, uh, anybody can basically pick up a knife and get busy with it because they've been doing some type of primal movement in their life that's going to correlate. I think that's the word we could use, you know, transfer over to, you know, um, being an assassin with a knife. Well, because, you know, jujitsu is pretty big in today's martial culture, is there a difficulty the way people train from, let's say, no gi to gi because they're not used to the grips? The same way from training with the stick to the knife because I find myself um, swinging wider with the stick. Not necessarily wider, but stronger. Where with the knife, I, I feel like I need to be a little bit more precise and controlled and almost have like binary pinpoints when I play with the knife. Okay, so we talked about jujitsu, gi, no gi, you know, a gi top, pair of shorts, pair of pants, a t-shirt, and you start mixing up all the different ways and clothings you can grapple in. And those really work on really grips. And then you can take your shirt off and you're slippery in hell and you're doing more of a mixed martial arts style of ground and pound and grappling. But now we're talking about a weapon, some steel, some plastic you know, whatever we've manufactured this weapon from. And I think we could think about Wally J and the small circle jujitsu theory and the large circle jujitsu theory and that, yeah, the Kali Eskrima Arnis are going to teach us how to move a stick and a sword in a certain way. It does transfer to knife, but you've got to minimize the movement and go from the large circle to the smaller circle. And you've definitely got to add in thrust which Pac Victorus really emphasized and that it's a thrusting art. And then if you've been exposed to prison, like I have, you'll see that the main object is to bleed someone out. This is just to put holes in them, cutting someone up. You know, we're not trying to eat them. They just want to kill them. So they want to stab them and make them bleed. And the best way to do that is to put holes just like in a can. You want the liquid to come out. It's interesting for the listening audience uh, when Mike Dogzilla drops these names, Wally J from Small Circle Jiu-Jitsu, Paul DeThars, which, uh, I, is it Penjot or Pencot for his for his system? Pencot Silat or Penjot? I don't even I only know. Met Paul, I only met Paul once. He came to thank um, Dr. G for rescuing him from a POW camp in Southeast Asia. Um Yet I did get to study with his brother, Victor DeThoris, and Sadak Silat. And his instructor had a club hand and a club foot. And Pac Vic, who passed away a couple years ago, came to Hawaii. And I got to train with him at the same time I was studying Penjot Silat with Bernard Chong, who was a student of Herman Zawande, and met some wonderful people there while studying sea lot. Um, and back Vic's style was thrusting, rear hand thrust. Wasn't a lot of flashing going on. Um, 
but the sewing machine was taken from prison from things that I had witnessed there. Did it ever influence you as, as a prison guard to go, you know what? I, I really need to work more on thrusting angles instead of high angle one, hang on high angle two or Piquiti Tertia horizontal high, you know, did, did you find it at that period? I'm thinking thrusting is way more dangerous than slashing at this point. Yes, um, I started liking um, Spotty Daga also. I mean, because we went through phases where we were either single stick or double stick or staff or single to staff. And, of course, there was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But there was always knife. And some people might call it knife dueling what we were doing. But whether we sparred all day with a staff, at the end of the day, we'd, we'd finish the day with a knife or vice versa. We might start with the knife first. So with the Dog Brothers, even a stick fight will usually start with knife. So we've always had a knife influence at Dog Brothers, and that's one of the things that attracted me to them, is that there was always a variety of weapons, but there was always the knife, either at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day. Why do you think that math was treated to where knife first, then stick last? Is it because, hey, I could be hurt more after the we do the higher consciousness with harder contact? Well, it's funny. Some of us found we got more beat up with the knife than we did with the stick. Um, even some of my group in Hawaii, and I ended up becoming reluctant to want to do knife first because we did get more jacked up on the knife than we did the stick, but it was just part of the curriculum that Top Dog um, influenced. And you get out there with a knife first, boy, and then you get to then you get to graduate to the stick. And I don't know if it just became easier when we went from knife to stick, but the knife was freaking the heart, well, the hardest part of the day. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I, I tend to think nowadays that the knife is so much more dangerous and harder to learn defense of especially you know with the internet and you see this the random stabbings in london uh in canada there was uh i won't even name the up oh, f- fuck it i'll name the the ethnicity there's the chinese guys that went crazy at the bus you know and and with anything, you know, you you watch a Guatemalan machete fight. You know, I, I feel like bladed weapons is so hard to learn in the systematic aspect of, of defense. Yeah, your best defense is an offense. Um, at least that's what I've come up with. Um, so I do some defensive motions and... In the early years, I found myself being more of a defensive counterattacking fighter, and I didn't know if it was because of the job where we really have to allow them to attack us first. And I started seeing it in fellow cops and firemen and correctional officers and stuff where they have to initiate the attack. And then in my own sport of stick fighting over the years, I said, okay, we need to make a change. I need to be more offensive. And then as I do like 
if you want to call it Muay Thai or kickboxing, instead of more defensive drills, I just do more striking to deal with the onslaught of, you know, a threat that this is probably the only chance I'm going to get to stop him is by also attacking him as well and not looking to try to defend myself. The only best way to defend is to attack. Now, when, when do you eventually get to Hawaii and training there? Cause right now we're, we we're a little bit past the IMB backyard group. Yeah. What's next after the IMB uh, backyard group? I spent a dozen years with the Hermosa clan and started in 1990 with the Dog Brothers. Okay. And met Lester Surfdog Griffin that same year and spent um, all that time also learning Machado Jiu-Jitsu through Mark Crafty Dog and the Dog Brothers. I didn't get a chance to frequent the Machado uh, schools or academies like some of my other friends. So we had, once again, backyard classes and night grappling classes of rolling. Um, after spending a dozen years in Southern California with the Dog Brothers, I ended up in Hawaii in 2002 uh, to open up a new federal prison. I had already spent... Um, 14 years in a high-rise prison in downtown L.A., and three years prior to that, I was at Terminal Island. So I had 17 years under my belt working in a federal prison. Then, of course, now I'm retired. I spent another 16 years working in, in the prison system in Hawaii and had a stick-fight team in Hawaii for 17 years. And once again, there was backyard classes um, studying uh, with Datu Manuelita Salama and Screma and Seelot or Bernard Chong and Penjot Seelot. And my own, of course, my own Dog Brothers Hawaii became an evolution of training different phases and modalities. I don't know how far we want to get with the Hawaii story yet. Well, w- well, uh, let's start with the Dog Brothers in Hermosa Beach. Uh, I've had a few requests from younger kids who are just into grappling. And I told them, hey, Carlos and Higgin were very integral into keeping it self-defense. And you should look up the Dog Brothers. Now, in the videos, I've seen a lot of Carlos Machado. But after interviewing Mark Denny, he said, well, Higgin also is integral to teaching pre-gatherings. Maybe you could elaborate on who did what amongst uh, the Machado brothers. Well, I only met Carlos a couple times before he moved to Texas. I met Higgin several times after that. And, of course, the Dog Brothers and Higgin Machado went to train a SEAL team. And there's some footage of that. And Higgin, you know, had a a good relationship with Mark Denny and I got to go to the Academy occasionally and train with different Machado brothers and our influence definitely with the Machado Jiu Jitsu 
uh, helped our stick grappling. And occasionally some of the Machado brothers or students of them would come by. And as I, I listened to what you said about other people needing to learn self-defense and they're primarily studying grappling, um, I would suggest for them to grapple with a stick, whether you do it with Judo Jean LaBelle style or the Dog Brothers style. <clears throat> um, I don't know how far we can get into the Machado Brothers. I don't know them all personally. Um, but I know the influence they had on us and some of my other dog brothers got to train with them a lot more than I did. Was it an instant welcome or, or were people like, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hit you with a stick. I'm going to Lameco 12 you straight down your skull. I don't need any grappling, any stick grappling. There was people that were anti grappling. There was feedlot groups and other people that weren't into uh, the grappling, but then when Top Dog, uh, you know, gets in your face and does a clinch and smashes you to the ground, you know, and does a pyong and comes in with a thrust to your gut, and next thing you know, you're arched over and he's taking your legs off from underneath you and you're on the ground, you know, then they were like, whoa, I, I need to uh, learn uh, something when I hit the ground, whatever it was. And not everyone was a great wrestler or did no judo or did no Greco. But what we found when we went to the ground is that Brazilian jiu-jitsu worked and helped us. And myself also coming from a football background in the Marines, I just thought about tackling people because I wasn't very good with the stick. Uh, they called it smash the bug. I would look to take a guy to the ground and ground and pound him. I didn't know any submissions, um, not many of them, and I didn't even think about it. I just figured just, you know, smash this guy with my fist after I tackle him. Um, of course, I got better later, but um, there was just no denying that stick grappling happened. And, then, of course, some people say, well, you guys got equipment on. I said, okay, but there's an awful lot of people out there, and no matter how hard you hit them with something, they might still keep coming. Um, even that inertia and that adrenaline and stuff, or maybe they're on dope you know, or they're drunk. And who knows what, what it is. And you might not have a piece of steel in your hands. You might have a piece of wood or rubber or something that you hit somebody with, and it's not going to stop them. They're going to keep coming. Maybe you weren't effective on how you hit them, but still people do enter into clinch range and you do end up on the ground with weapons. And I don't think it just happens in sports. Um, and I've seen a lot of things in prison and I think seen things on the street and, you know, uh, the ground happens. Now, if you were to recommend someone to learn stick grappling, do they start with just basic jujitsu or do you automatically throw in the stick right away? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think you learn jujitsu and then you, cause you got to learn position before submission and, well, one, do you teach them call E first? You know, do you teach them how to move a weapon around? That's the other thing. I think they need both. I think they need jujitsu over here on the ground, and then I think they need some stand-up with the weapon, or whether it's through Jeet Kune Do concepts or just through, say, let's call it Filipino martial arts. Um, and then later I learned some Thai martial arts with Kribi Kabrong. Whatever weapon 
stand-up weapon arts you could learn, you could mix it with your ground. If you want to just learn how to stick grapple, well, you better know how to grapple first. Um, and you also better know how to move the weapon. But I think what you're, what you're asking is, yeah, you better learn some jujitsu and not just start with a stick. Okay. If you're going to get into stick grapple. And, and that no, that, that, that's absolutely helpful because one of the main reasons why I, this interview is not about me, but I was training with Sijia Tong, uh, for, for, for the clinch training and then I was training with Jean-Jacques Machado and Sensei Gokor and then training with a couple of the guys from the Lameco Backyard Group because I wanted to fight uh, at Dog Brothers. I've, I've only done the knife portion but you know I, I still in the future want to do train in stick grappling so that's very helpful advice. Uh, now in regards to the transferring to Hawaii because you did you find that the Hawaiians are very friendly, very warm, but at the same time hot headed, hot blooded, and like to scrap? Is that a fable or a tale or is that true? What did you learn about Hawaiians in regards to fighting? Well, I'm gonna call them the local people. Sure. Um not everybody there is Hawaiian. There's Polynesians and there's Asians and there's a little bit of everybody. Um, if we talk about the local people, um, they can become offended by, say, someone like me who's Howley who comes along and doesn't respect their culture or I'm ignorant of their culture. And they might want to scrap empty hands, skin on skin to settle a beef as opposed to pulling a weapon. So even in prison, that same uh, culture is there. It's more skin on skin. And out in society, um, it's accepted to get into a scrap to settle a beef with somebody, whether it's over a wave or maybe you did something wrong by, you know, uh, looking too hard at someone else's woman. Um, well, he likes there. So, I mean... Yeah, there's a lot of beautiful ladies running around, and us young men could get caught up and maybe looking a bit too hard. Sure. And then next thing you know, you know, you offended somebody, or like myself, my daughter played soccer and ran track, and we were at sporting events, and things got emotional. Um, you would have to defend yourself verbally and let them know that you know you were ready for a physical confrontation. Um, yeah, they're. Uh, they're feisty, a feisty group of people over there in Hawaii, and they stand their ground. Um, I love them for it, and I miss them every day. Did you find a big difference in prison culture from L.A. to Hawaii? Like night and day. Mm, please, please enlighten, I never, sir. I never had an inmate apologize for something they did to me until I went to Hawaii. Um, the amount of respect I got at work was completely different, and there wasn't... You could cut the animosity with a knife when you walked into a prison in Southern California. And when you went into a prison in Hawaii, there was 
there was mutual respect and it was, it was night and day. And the people there that were incarcerated, they knew they did something wrong. They've had time out to reflect on it. And we, of course, probably adapted to that culture as well, where there wasn't the same negative coming back from us. And so, um, if it wasn't for a prison, it'd been a great place to work, but it was. And most of the people there were, you know, a little bit insane. Some people had just made some mistakes in their lives and were ready to turn their lives back around and some never will. Um, but the culture of mainland prison and Hawaii prison is way different. And you go to work and people are making shock at you. And I'm talking about the inmates too. And just a very different attitude. I was a work supervisor. There was a can-do attitude. I supervised female inmates for the majority of my career there. That was a whole other topic. And when dealing with the males, they very much had personal respect for you as a human being compared to when I worked on the mainland. There was a lack of respect as a human being and that I was a cop and that I was, you know, um, the enemy. And when I went to work in Hawaii, I wasn't the enemy. I was probably there, someone to help them. And whether they could, you know, rationally use that or not, they were kind of happy-go-lucky in jail in Hawaii and quite the opposite on the mainland. Is there... That's fantastic, and thank you for that share. Is is there a difference in protocol and how prisons are ran or do you feel that's just culturally based and geographically based? Well, yeah, it's culturally based and of course, geographically the, the people from the Pacific region there, cause we didn't just have Hawaiians. We had people from Samoa, people from Guam, someone off the boat from China or Japan um, you never know who got in trouble out in that region and ended up in a federal prison. So you don't really know who you're going to get. So you couldn't be complacent because you could get somebody who snuck on an airplane with a, a brand new iPhone in a box and find out, you know, he's a Muslim extremist. Um, and then I ended up feeding him on suicide watch, you know, um, So you could go from, you know, light and dark, you know, in moments and you could end up feeding somebody and dealing with somebody who killed their captain on high sea, you know, by decapitating him. And then you could have someone who, you know, did too many DUIs or didn't pay their taxes or did too much dope and kind of, you know, uh, ruined their life for the moment and got to jail and got rescued. Um, so there's everybody from, you know, really dark to really light. Um, and culturally the prisons in Hawaii are very different than the mainland. And you have, you have to treat them more like, um, we're there to rehabilitate them, to become productive members of society, as opposed to on the mainland, there wasn't that same kind of compassion because of course we weren't receiving it either. 
I have a complex question. It's going to be two parts. I'll ask the first question. Uh, back in downtown LA, let, because everything is segregated via race, what was there? Yeah. Because, you know, let's say you're Asian and you go to jail. I'm Chinese and Filipino. Do I yeah. look for my fellow Filipinos or is it just all the Asians together? And then with the Latin culture, do if there's only like, let's say, 10 Salvadorians, do they cop, cop, couple up with the Mexicans? How does that work? By no, well, everything goes to color at some point. It's going to be white, black, brown, yellow. And then depending on, say, if you were local, you might end up being labeled as a pineapple. Um, and depending on the severity of the situation, yes, brown and brown are going to link. But then they have their own personal rivalries, just like the English, the Scots, and the Irish do. So depending on if you're Caucasian, you can relate to that. If you're Asian, you're going to have your own separation, but isn't going to be as bad as, say, a Norteño and a Soreño or someone from Central America or someone from, you know, Mexico. I mean, so it would depend on on the business. There's rivalries, inter-rivalries, but it depends on those shades of colors that I just mentioned. So as an example, I could walk into the mess hall, the dining room in Terminal Island, and you could tell you were having a bad day because everyone was separated. Blacks were on one side, the whites on another, the Italians here, the pineapples there, the Asians here. And yeah, on that type of day, it didn't matter whether you were from El Salvador or a Chicano from Los Angeles, you were with your color. And how did that work in Hawaii? Because everyone... I mean, like you said, even Anthony Bourdain has had episodes in Hawaii where they're explained like, I'm Vietnamese, but I'm not Hawaiian, but I'm, you know, like like you were elaborating earlier. Was there a, a yellow, brown, or a rice coconut segregative system to the inmates in Hawaii? Not that I ever saw. It was completely different. Um, they didn't have the same gang affiliation. Um, and not to put down a particular race, there were times, say, like, if it was like business, say, like the Samoans had problems with another Polynesian group, they might get together um, and do something, but nothing on the same level that's going on in the mainland. So 90% of the time, I would say no, everybody was a coconut. And then once in a while, you could have different problems depending on how business was going. And the main problem we had, you know, could come from, you know, from the drug business. And so then it would depend on who's doing business with who. You know, is it the Filipino gangs out of one section or the Samoan gangs out of another? And you almost couldn't call them gangs the way they behave. But they have their, their moments. They're not angels, but they don't, they don't color up the same way um, they do on the mainland. Since 
a, a, a prison in, and you've elaborated on how people were very shaka and, you know, warm or at least respectful towards you. Me being Chinese and Filipino, I'm, I'm the same way. But when anger strikes, you know, it, it's almost like passive aggressiveness on 10. So were, were fights and killings way more severe and intense when it came down to that versus the mainland? Or beef is just beef, and I'm I'm gonna kill your ass. Passive aggressive, okay. Mainland versus so the local boys in Hawaii. You could have the Usos wanting to claim territory on some level or some reason, but it usually was about drugs. Um, I once had a made man out of Philadelphia who was a Costa tell me that you can stay out of 90% of your problems in prison if you leave drugs alone, you stop gambling, and you leave the punks alone. So you don't have you know sexual relations with someone, you don't gamble, and you don't do any dope. You're going to stay away from most of the problems. If you followed that rule in Hawaii, you'd stay away from 99% of your problems because you just wouldn't be involved with people on those levels. The people in Hawaii tend to settle their beef empty hand, and the people on the mainland settle their beef with a weapon, primarily a shank, a knife. Wow. I'm sure there's other prisons where if they get their hands on a long, longer piece of steel, they might use more of a machete, but I wasn't in those type of prisons that you know people use those type of weapons um, they preferred a shank, a knife, was the weapon of ambush and assassination. And, of course, you could get your hands on any kind of crude weapon and get busy with it. It might be putting some sodas in a sock. I've seen plenty of that. I saw some of that in Hawaii, too, or lock in a sock. But I could say the difference between Hawaii and the mainland was provocation. You know, what are you doing to provoke this person to become that angry? And in Hawaii, you really have to push someone's frickin' buttons in order for them to go to deadly force. They mostly just want to whoop your ass empty hand. But of course, if later on you're pushing those limits and taking it a bit further than just stealing their soup, you know, of course they got to settle things differently. Whereas on the mainland, you're going to have soft candy and hard candy hits. And a lot of times it's about your manhood that you have to protect. And so you're going to go to a weapon first. Of course, there's empty hand fights just as well. Beef start, whether they're in Hawaii or the mainland, with empty hands. But primarily on the mainland, they like their weapons. And in Hawaii, they'll, they'll fight first. And then things will get settled later. And there's always the shot callers that are going to determine what level you're going to go to also, because you're usually going to have to go to your color and ask permission on what you can do. I feel like I could talk to you for hours, Mike. Um, how does this martial arts training, migrating to Hawaii, working, uh, being a Marine first, and then 
working in a federal prison and a prison in Hawaii, how has this shaped your personality? Because you sound really calm and easygoing. What did you did did all this fed the prison work change you? Did martial arts help you balance that? Like, how are you as a person throughout all these years? Well, like everybody else, I had my dysfunctional times in life, and I had times where um, I abused alcohol and I smoked a lot of pot when I was young. And now I wish I Same never here. have. And um, yeah, I went into the Marines at 17 and came out and got a job in the federal prison at 21. I found myself to be uh, socially dysfunctional. I kind of keep to myself. Um, when we go back to the story about Dustin the Wind and Dustin Nugent and the brothers, the first girl I ever loved was drugged and gang raped by my so-called brothers. So how the hell was I going to trust other men and boys to be around people that I cared about and loved when the first girl I ever loved, when I moved away, they took advantage of, and later she committed suicide on Christmas Day, that shaped my life to wanting to learn how to protect, and I ended up in the Marines because my grandfather was in World War II with my colonel. I ended up going wherever my colonel went during the Marines. Um, they, my, my grandfather and colonel went to the Solomon Islands and eventually, eventually went and took back the Philippines and lived, I end up charging around with this salty ass colonel. He retired. I got out of the Marines, got a job with the, the war on drugs, the war on crime and the war on terror. Um, I'm sure I took it plenty of it home to my first wife and kid. And I sought martial arts to help me with that. And, uh, my stepfather was a soldier as well, and even though he took me to church, he's like, you know, God can only help us so much, we got to help ourselves. And I found Jeet Kune Do concepts, Dog Brother Martial Arts, Martial Arts in general, Combative Arts, helped me deal with all those demons that were, you know, getting inside of me. And, yeah, there were times I didn't handle everything effectively, and then I saw that I needed to stop drinking and smoking pot and got more into training. And the martial arts helped me become a better human being and um, helped me deal with all the dark crap that I've had to deal with in my life. That, that, that's one very intense, heavy, but also enlightening minute and a half. And... You know, I've always, I want to share with the listening audience, you probably won't remember this. So I, I, I did the knife portion at Dog Brothers. I don't even remember what year. This was in the early 2000s. And someone threw like a, like a, like an explosive. It's like one of those small Chinese, like, you know, um, like New Year's type explosive things. And someone accused my friend of throwing it and then you stepped right in and you were like, what's going on here? And then, you know, I had my, my full on Lameco scream of like sweats and t-shirts. And I'm like, Oh, he's, this guy's accusing my friend. And then you just stepped in and you were like, look, man, 
this is something you were talking to the guy and you were like, look, man, this is about peace, uh, a peaceful fighting gathering, which is an ironic statement. And you're like, if you didn't see him do it, you can't accuse people. And then you moved on, you know, and, and that's, that, that's something I'll always remember because I'm like, this dude just stepped in and kept the peace and, and check the guy. So I have, I've always had a distant admiration for how you carried yourself. But in that moment, uh, you really regulated. And I, I was thankful for that because it could have escalated to something big. And I, I want to give you so much credit for that. And I've always admired how you carried yourself in public at your posts. And, um, I'm not, it sounds like I'm closing, but if you could spare me five more minutes, that would be great. Uh, and I want to share that with the audience and they need to know who you are because martial arts, it's not just grappling. There's so many different facets and, and people like you, I owe to expose quite a bit. Um, more on the societal tip. I, I saw you, uh, post something about using the term, uh, Chinese virus or the China flu and you were sharing with people hey we can't label it like this because of your wife who is of of Filipino and Chinese descent which I am could you expound and share with the audience what you meant by that post sure I ask people to reflect on what they're saying and to be careful because we can provoke people we need to be responsible right now and some of my friends were getting carried away with their sense of humor and we all have them i've had my moments too of saying something that was inappropriate and then someone would check me and hopefully um with all my mentors that i've had in life i'm probably the way i am because of that and family and friends but that situation that i wrote about that we're still dealing with now um i don't want to see innocent people get hurt i mean most of us know who's responsible and, or who is irresponsible with this virus. Sure. And, but that doesn't mean that use my wife, my hardworking healthcare wife, you know, doing x-ray and MRI gets acid thrown in her face or rocks thrown at her or at her car, you know, and gets terrorized, um, going to work and back home or wherever. And, we've already kind of experienced it a little bit in Hawaii where my wife gets a lot of dirty looks in public and especially at the stores, we'll go somewhere and there's a lot of howlies here and they're looking at my wife now like, well, what the hell? And why isn't she wearing a mask? I'm just assuming, but, um, we've been getting a lot of stink eye and a lot of dirty looks. And then I see my friends kind of jumping on this bandwagon with the Kung Fu and the Wuhan and the, and the woo flu and all that. And I thought I would reach some of my friends on this level. Some of my friends are Jewish and they would ask us to help them with the anti-Semitic crap that goes on in their culture from other people. And i may not explain this exactly right. Cause there's a lot of emotions involved, but I'm thinking if the, it was an on the other foot, if this virus, 
came from somewhere else in the world and it had different labels on it and stuff and you were getting graffiti painted or you were getting called out on it, you would want us of other cultures to step up and help. And so I'm asking for other people of other cultures to regulate what they say and to recognize that a lot of innocent folks could get hurt if we keep provoking them with our sense of humor or our political stances. And we know most of us are, are intelligent enough to see what's going on with the propaganda from one country to the next. And <coughs> we already know where the virus came from. They already call it a coronavirus or COVID-19. So we have to keep calling it the China virus or the Wuhan virus or the Kung Fu virus or the Chinese virus. And then next thing you know, some hardworking, you know, Chinese folks or Asian folks get freaking hurt when they're coming and going, doing whatever they do um, because there's, you know, this hate that's getting brewed. And we've seen it happen in other things. Well, it can happen here now. And I have a doctor that I got here in Florida. He's from Iran. I don't hate on him because he's Iranian. We're doing good business. He's a good doctor. I'm going to not stop seeing him just because we got problems with Iran, you know, and I don't want to see my wife get hurt. I don't want to see anyone else's kids or wives or sisters or brothers or dads or anybody get hurt over this. I mean, the whole world is already hurting. We're, I mean, we probably could say we're going through something we've never gone through at this age. I'm going to be 57. I've never seen a pandemic like this before that affected the world like this. And I don't want to see other people get hurt. And I believe we got into martial arts because we're protectors. And I think we're going a bit too far when we start labeling this virus the same way the Spanish flu was labeled. We should learn from our mistakes and make sure that we protect the innocent people in the world and not provoke hate. We need to provoke peace. We need to advocate that. And so we got into martial arts because we believe that there's the human race, that we're all the same. We all burple. So we need to knock off the bullshit and protect everybody and get through this. And I don't know, you know, you could, I could keep going, but. Now it's your turn. No, that was beautifully said. And, um, you know, a lot of really fortified my scheduling in, in talking to you is because of that post where, you know, it, it's really important because if, if the H1N1 flu came out right now, which was derived out of Mexico, I'm glad they called it H1N1 because last thing you need to do is be racist or be harmful towards Mexican people. Dude, I, I've dated Mexican girls. I, they've influenced the world with, with a tortilla. And, you know, if it weren't for the Treaty of Guadalupe, California, where I live, would still be, you know, Mexican-based. And the fact that you posted that it is more due to context of, like, look, like what you said. It, it came from the Chinese. I'm half Chinese, and I, I was pissed off at the Chinese at that region. But at the same time, I can't do this 
it's written as coronavirus, cross it out and call it Chinese virus because it's it's just terrible with this uh, lack of context, social media overreacting world. It, it's not good. No, but we could do some, we could do some good and, and help educate people uh, through martial arts that are like-minded, that we're into the human race and we're here to um, support each other and we need to watch what we do and watch what we say. And my daughter's Hispanic, my grandkids are Hispanic, um, so I've blended with other races. My grandmother is Choctaw, um, you know, so my immigrant family came from England and Ireland and eventually my grandfather met a native American girl. Um, we all live with people from different cultures. So we need to respect everyone's differences or indifferences. And <clears throat> we need some regulation on this hate with this virus so we can get through it without more innocent people getting hurt and killed because there's enough people getting sick and dying from this <clears throat> as I'm getting a little choked up again, but martial arts, I believe that's how we got here. You and I met because we're interested in protecting. And so I'd like to ask all my fellow martial artists to look out for each other and all our civilians. Cause not everybody's a protector. You know, you have like, um, you know, in, in Christianity, you call them sheep. And you have sheep dogs. And I think, you know, we all have different animals inside of us. And some people need more protecting than others. But everybody brings something to the table. I mean, my wife's out there doing health care. I can't do what she does, you know. And she didn't take down bad guys for a living like I did either. And I can't build a house or, you know, save a human being from, you know, an illness. So um, I think we all need to have more respect for each other and hopefully that's what we'll get out of it without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop hospitals factories schools and power plants they all depend on you no matter the weather emergency or time of day you're the ones who get it done at granger we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies count on real-time product availability and fast delivery Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.